There are some who argue that the United States of America, as a nation, should be defined by its civic identity, a federal republic whose founding promised equality under the law and liberty to all of its people. But there's a darker side to American history, too, one built on ethno-nationalism and white supremacy. Today's guest traces the rise and fall and rise again of these competing ideas over the long arc of our national history. He's Colin Woodard this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week, we're joined by Colin Woodard, an accomplished journalist who has reported from 50 foreign countries. He's also a remarkably talented best-selling historian whose most recent book is Union, The Struggle to Forge the Story of United States Nationhood. Colin, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. I have to tell you, your book really, uh, really knocked me. I was uh, uh, just, I, this was the probably the best sweeping, broad intellectual history of American national identity that I've read maybe ever. Uh, so for the audience who maybe hasn't read it yet, uh, why don't you give us a, a quick overview? Yeah, the question I have always had is, you know, what holds our country together? And I think a lot of people are worried about that these days. And so I wanted to look to the past to understand the story that was developed to hold the United States' different sections and regional cultures together. Um, a previous book I wrote, American Nations, argued that there's never been one America, but rather several Americas, that the differences between, say, the Puritan colonies in New England and the Dutch settled area around New York City and the West Indies slave planter founded area in the Deep South and the Scots-Irish backcountry and the Spanish settled Southwest and so on, that those differences were enormously profound in the colonial period and carried on throughout our history. Fundamentally different ideas about um, what kind of society should be built, about the relationship between individual liberty and the common good, between church and state, and how you identify who belongs and who doesn't. We're sort of a, a balkanized federation, a collection of separate nations, if you will, and always have been. So my question was, what held it together? How was the story developed that was able to um, bring all of these disparate regional cultures together and convince Americans that we had a shared history and past and set of ideals? Because the facts on the ground were that we didn't all the way through into the 1870s. And so Union is the story through the lives of the people who first really developed and packaged our story of of nationhood, our national narrative, the battle between them and sort of how they developed their ideas, what those ideas were, how they succeeded in, um, in broadcasting them and, uh, and setting them out uh, to the public and the uh, implications that that all has for us today, which are unfortunately pretty profound and pretty relevant to our present moment. And I think we're going to get to some of that contemporary stuff in a bit, but I, I want to, the, the issue of nationhood, you describe as uh, the, the national narrative, right? The, the, con the conception we have of being unified and, and, and one. Is that, is that a conscious 
decision? Were there people setting out to say, look, I'm going to tell the story of America, or is this something that just evolves organically? Yeah, I mean, I think for different nations, it evolves in various ways. But in our story, a few people did set out with the task of trying to create a national story, a national story of unity to, to define the country. You know, at the beginning, um, you know, there was a, these different regional cultures had risen up against a common enemy during the American Revolution. They won, they found themselves together in something called the United States and nobody was really sure what that was. You know, was it a military alliance? Was it a sort of European Union-like entity that would share, you know, trade and foreign affairs responsibilities, but the nations were sovereign? Or was it a real nation state? Nobody knew. And so a few people actually set out, took it upon themselves, had the audacity and the connections and the, um, and the wherewithal to try to put forward a story in the uh, 1830s of what the United States was, a story that would hopefully paper over those profound divisions between the different regional cultures and, um, and create a, a myth, if you were, that Americans could hold on to, uh, you know, hopefully a successful myth. Ultimately, it was a successful myth, but the, um, the problem was that there was more than one of them. And there, you know, there wasn't a, it wasn't as though our central government, our central government wasn't designed to have say a, a ministry of culture like a European state would, that would develop such a narrative and you know, send it out through the public school systems and the like. In our country, with the um, skepticism of the central government, especially in the early decades, it was necessary for individuals to come up with an idea and try to succeed in selling it and broadcasting it across the Federation in a sort of epic battle of ideas and, uh, and a struggle in the, in the media environment of the 19th century. So you follow the lives of three prominent American thinkers from the 1820s through the end of Reconstruction. And uh, we, we want to get into each of the three. And why don't you start with George Bancroft? Who was he? What was his contribution to the notion of nationhood? And, and, and what did you write about him in Union. Yeah, my goal was, you know, um, I knew that uh, through into the 1870s, most Americans realized that our country was divided into those different regional cultures. So I wanted to go back to the beginning of the phenomenon. At what point was there a national story being put out there and, and trying to be sold to people? And who developed that story? And in doing my research, I quickly discovered George Bancroft was the first person to package it, which is why I started with him. And he's largely forgotten today, but George Bancroft was the most influential historian bar none in the Americas in the 19th century. And he's somebody who lived through almost the entire 19th century. He was born in 1800 and died in the 1890s and was active throughout as a historian, but also as an actual political actor. He served as Secretary of War and Secretary of the Navy under the Polk administration. He was our ambassador to, um, to, to uh, Germany and to the United Kingdom. He played a critical role in some of the events in our country as well as putting forth this first packaged national narrative. And so it was, it was he who, through his histories, um, first created this story, this sort of myth that Americans had a shared past and a shared set of ideals that held them together and, uh, and put that forward rather convincingly to the American people at a time in the 1830s when they were really hungry for such a story. 
Were, were his histories, uh, to use a modern term, bestsellers, were they widely read? Were they discussed? Who, who was the market and the audience and who bought and read his, his histories? Yes, massively so at the time. His uh, 10 volume history of the United States was the main vehicle through which he, he proselytized this national story of the United States. Um, but it took him, you know, 60 years to write this series of books. The first volume came out in the 1830s, and then others came out in subsequent years. And all of them put together only span the period up until the Constitutional Convention in the 1780s. In other words, it was really a prehistory of the United States, one that, as I said, was papering over the fact that each of the regional cultures had totally separate histories. Um, and people wanted to hear this story. So yes, it, they were massively successful books, cultural and media events at the time, each and every one that transformed the way people were then writing about America's history, the way history was being taught in universities, the way politicians were talking about America and its ideals, including Bancroft himself, who was the Democratic Party boss of Massachusetts and even ran for governor there. So, I mean, it was, um, it was an enormous event and enormously influential and also controversial because Bancroft's particular take on what America's story is, which we can go into, um, had its detractors and opponents immediately and in real time who put together a counter narrative, uh, you know, a, a competing version. Um, and those two narratives side by side have sort of been engaged in a continuing struggle for the soul of this country ever since. So, so maybe you can just break down briefly those two narratives, the narrative and the counter narrative. Right. Bancroft's story, I mean, Bancroft was sent uh, as a young man. He graduated from Harvard in 1817 and was sent by the president of Harvard to Europe to earn a PhD because you couldn't get a PhD in the United States. And uh, this is important because he was in Europe at the very time that Europeans and particularly Germans and Central Europeans were trying to develop the ideas of European nationhood. And he studied under the key figures of German romantic nationalism. They were his professors you know, Herring and Hegel and the Van Humboldts. And so his story that he came back to the United States with fused his, his own Puritan background from New England. He was uh, from Massachusetts, had gone to Exeter and to Harvard. His father was a, you know, a congregational, you know, Unitarian intellectual. Um, he merged the idea that the Puritans had, right, that, there's, that, that they're on a mission, right? The early Puritans thought that they were and a covenanted relationship with God, like the Old Testament Hebrews, that God had chosen them to do specific things in the world, uh, an errand in the wilderness, to, to put a light on the hill, to create a more perfect utopian society. And so he took that idea that Americans had a special mission in the world sanctioned by their creator, and he merged it with German ideas that history had a plan and a purpose, and that nations were like organisms that grew from their common instructions. It was inevitable that a nation would, would have certain characteristics because it was part of their, what we would call their DNA. And so he put those together into a, a civic national vision that said that Americans were chosen to come here to promote human freedom and to spread it across the world and across this continent. That we were committed, you know, we, we may appear to be separate people, South Carolinians and New Yorkers and Massachusettsians, but really each of those places had been planted with the same seed, with the same American, you know, na national, uh, you know, ambition and characteristics. 
And that what we were tasked with, what bonded us together wasn't a shared past or religion or ethnicity, but rather a commitment to a set of ideals, the ideals in the Declaration of Independence about the inherent equality of humans and their rights to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness and representative self-government. And that who belonged, anyone who believed in those things and was committed to those ideals was an American or a potential American. So it was defined and in a sense, it was you know, the first nation and nations were a pretty early and new thing in the early 19th century. It was the first nation that had kind of been defined around ideals, not some kind of you know, bloodline and tribal characteristics. And so that was the vision that Bancroft had, uh, large elements of which you can still recognize and hear in our, our, the own, our own national narrative still today. Alan, the other story that you track in the first two thirds of the book is that of William Gilmore Sims. Uh, so Bancroft from Massachusetts, Sims from South Carolina, he has a different idea about what the story of the United States is. Can you tell us about that? Correct. I mean, the, you know, the, the United States and the world was a much smaller place then. So William Gilmore Sims and Bancroft knew each other. And when Sims first started reading Bancroft's history and realizing the story he put forward, he was outraged and he countered it uh, with his own version of a national narrative. And this was one conditioned like Bancroft's on his own regional cultural experiences. Sims was from South Carolina and from Charleston. And you know that was a region that was um, built on a classical Republican vision, right? Modeled on the slave states of classical antiquity and democracy like ancient Greece or ancient Rome, where a, you know, a small minority at the top of the pyramid has the privilege or the liberty to practice democracy and the you know, subjugation and slavery with the natural lot of the many lower down in society's pyramid. And this was the you know, society he believed in and he came forward with a counter narrative that said, nonsense, you know, Jefferson was entirely wrong when he wrote that people have inherent you know, are inherently equal when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. They're clearly not. And in fact, uh, the only people Sims said who actually had the, um, the capacity to exercise the, the, the freedoms in, in articulated in the Declaration of Independence were the allegedly superior Anglo-Saxon race. And that the different um, colonies uh, that formed the United States were all the organic ethnic homelands of the Anglo-Saxons. They're the ones who had brought the genius of democracy and had created the the, uh, the, the Declaration and the Constitution, and therefore it was their homelands. And the wonderful thing about the United States is that it was an umbrella or a shield that helped protect these various um, ethno states uh, so that they could proceed. And other peoples, uh, certainly to include uh, people of African descent, were not members of the community, were not full citizens or even entitled to citizenship necessarily. So it was a, you know, an ethnic based, you know, bloodline based definition of what an American was, that was inherently exclusionary, and, you know, ultimately a white supremacist model, it would evolve over time from, you know, the the belonging group being Anglo Saxons to being more broadly um, Protestants to eventually include Catholics. And, you know, it's been with us for a long time. But the point is, there's always, um, 
based on bloodlines and, uh, and cultural lines, certain people who belong to the community and others uh, who do not and who are excluded based on those things, an, an ethno-nationalist definition. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Colin Woodard an award-winning journalist with the Portland Press-Herald and Politico. He's also the author of an amazing history of the idea of the United States, titled Union, The Struggle to Forge the Story of United States Nationhood. You can follow Colin on Twitter too, at Woodard Colin. That's W-O-O-D-A-R-D-C-O-L-I-N. And so the third thinker and, and historical figure, of course, is Frederick Douglass. Talk about him. Yeah, he was the pivotal figure in this story because um, you know he's a little bit younger than Sims and Bancroft were. And he, of course, was a uh, escaped enslaved person. He'd escaped slavery in the uh, eastern shore of Maryland, had gotten uh, to the north, had been discovered by the early um, abolitionists, the Garrisonians. Um, and you know the key thing, the the way that these you disseminated ideas and won the battle of ideas, then started with people giving public orations, and you know, people would attend those orations at a you know the, those speeches at a major hall, and um, people would then talk about it afterwards and tell their neighbors and stuff because there wasn't a lot of stuff going on back then. The newspaper would come and would often, if it was an important speech, actually transcribe the entire speech, you know, lay it out and print it in their next edition. And that newspaper would get distributed and it would go on a ship and reach the next city. And the newspaper editors there would subscribe to the other papers. And if they really liked the speech, they would go out and put down, take all the letters in their printing press and actually reprint the whole thing. They would retweet it, if you will. <laughs> if they were outraged by it, they might take a segment of it and reprint it with a comment above it, right? Retweeting with comment. It worked a lot like Twitter, but much slower. And those ideas would, would move around and eventually spread from place to place and somebody else might counter them. Sims might hear about Bancroft's speeches in that way and step up and be invited to speak in an August Hall in South Carolina and restart the process. And the most important speeches would form books. And this was how the battle, the, the, the media battle over ideas happened. And I tell you this because the Garrisonians took Frederick Douglass, who was working as a day laborer in the docks of New Bedford, and they saw that he had an incredible story to tell. And you know, a first person, you know, first uh, hand account of slavery and the way it corrupts, you know, both the enslaved and the masters. But also he was staggeringly gifted as a public speaker. And he had covertly, even though it was illegal to teach slaves to read and write, he had covertly learned and was a great writer as well. So they grabbed him and they put him 
full-time on, on their speaker circuit, sending him by train all over the northern tiers of the country, all the way out to Ohio and Michigan, giving multiple speeches a day at a time when giving these speeches was an incredibly consequential um, you know, media lever and way of getting ideas out. And he became very quickly one of the most you know, famous and notable people in the United States and even in the Anglo-American world. When the Fugitive Slave Act came out, he actually had to flee to Ireland and the United Kingdom where he did a speaking tour there to audiences of thousands. And so he became incredibly influential and what he was saying in essence in all of his speeches and writing is he was taking that civic national story, right? That what bonds Americans together is fealty to the ideals in the Declaration of Independence and saying, these are great ideals and Americans are obviously not achieving them. They remain aspirational ideals. And that you, and he was speaking mostly to white Northerners, you know, should defend those ideals. He was imploring um, white Americans to do so as the, you know, in the years leading up to the Civil War. And he wanted not only that, you know, African Americans be brought into the circle of belonging, but also he was standing up for almost any oppressed group at, 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 at any one time. He was close friends with Susan B. Anthony and spoke at the Seneca Falls uh, Women's uh, Convention in, in favor of suffrage. Uh, when he was in Ireland, he arrived in Ireland, the United Kingdom, right after this potato famine had begun and was, you know, arguing against the oppression of the Irish to English audiences and Scottish audiences. And when the Chinese Exclusion Act was happening, uh, he was speaking for the rights of uh, Asian Americans. So, I mean, he's, he was really committed to that civic national vision. And in his speeches, because he understood the tragedy that Americans hadn't achieved these ideals, that they still needed to be fought for, his, um, his writings and descriptions of our national purpose remain some of the most evocative and relevant ones to this day. And you'll find, you know, pieces and metaphors and ideas from them scattered throughout, you know, all of our speakers who start talking about the United States' story uh, ever since. So I, I mean, an enormously pivotal figure in the creation of our national story who helped influence, you know, Lincoln at the at the Gettys at Gettysburg, the Gettysburg Address to to commit the nation to the struggle for those ideals to say for the first time in the middle of the Civil War that this was what the Civil War was really about. I mean, he just had an, an enormous influence on our national story. So, Colin, you mentioned the Civil War, and we've got about five minutes left here, and we want to make sure that we spend a little time talking about America today. But you mentioned the Civil War, and you know what I took from your history of both the Civil War and the period of Reconstruction is that while civic nationalism emerges from the immediate aftermath of the war, over the long period of Reconstruction and then the decades that follow, it's really the rise of the ethno-national identity that Sims advocated rather than the uh, civic nationalism of Bancroft and, and, and Douglas. Is that an accurate summation? That's correct. I mean, that's the tragedy of our story. I mean, the, in the battle over what kind of nation the United States should be, the South lost the war, but indeed won the peace. And Reconstruction failed. And, you know, <laughs> to the, I think, Anybody in the 1870s would have been surprised that by the 1910s and 1920s, the story, these two stories, these two stories were 
in competition and fighting each other from the 1830s onward, including in the Civil War itself when it came to, to actual you know, fighting and blows. And it's in the 1910s and 1920s that one of them finally becomes dominant. And it is indeed that white supremacist model, sort of in the Woodrow Wilson presidency days, when all these Confederate statues we see being taken down were put up with the height of Jim Crow, when um, the United States passed an immigration act based explicitly on defending the Anglo-Saxon character of the country with race and ethnic-based quotas to do so. I mean, it was a it was a very ugly period in which in North and South, in the aftermath of the Civil War, that 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 ethno-nationalist narrative triumphed. It would be overthrown again in the 1960s, and that our civic national narrative then, you know, became the consensus narrative. But it wasn't until then, until the 1960s, that that was the case. And one of the reasons that the battle for the soul of this country is so profound is precisely because the ethno-national alternative has indeed been the dominant force in our country in our not so distant past. And it's not so distant. It seems that the 2016 hung on that idea of America as an ethno-nationalist state. Um, wh where are we now? What, what, what's the state of play right now in terms of the story of America? Right. I mean, the, you know, Trump and Trumpism draw a great deal on this ethno-national idea, right? There are some people who aren't real Americans and who don't belong. And, you know, the, I think it all culminated even on January 6th, where you're seeing the Confederate flag brought into the Capitol Rotunda. You know, the, the resistance to replacing, you know, the monuments of notorious Confederates and others. This is a battle over precisely this again. So in, it, it's never completely gone away, but um, ethno-nationalism is definitely in a resurgence like we haven't seen in my lifetime. And, and because of the faults in our country, the, the fact that we're um, balkanized with these different tectonic plates of different regional cultures with different views on this, and the fact that it's our national narrative, our civic national story that is the glue that holds us together, it's always very dangerous for the United States when people start pouring solvent and challenging that civic national story, there's not a lot to fall back on because the, the ethno-national one, you know, ang Anglo-Saxons are not a majority in this country uh, these days. So it's not a recipe for union, but rather disunion. Well, and I know you've given some thought to what we need to be doing to, to work on that new American story. We've got a little bit more than a minute left. Uh, what should we be doing as citizens? Right. It's essential for any country to have a national story, whether it's Japan or Germany or Iceland or ourselves. And we've kind of uh, dropped the ball on it. Right. People after the, you know, the, the Cold War and globalization started thinking nations wouldn't matter and that our national story wouldn't matter. It matters a lot. Individuals need it. So we need to revamp, revisit that civic national story and those ideals and declaration and repackage them and articulate them for today. And people should define politics that way. The reason that you are you know, putting forth this set of policies or rejecting that may have to do with actually extending the promises in the Declaration of Independence. That's what defines Americans and what America is all about. And people, you know, and our leaders and we ourselves need to recommit to that and start articulating it because, you know, the forces that would overthrow that are active and on the move.
Colin, that's where we're going to need to leave it today. Thank you so much for being with us. He is Colin Woodard. The book is Union, and we strongly endorse it. That's all the time we have this week. But if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org, where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. <laughs>